This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following program may contain explicit language. It's Thursday, May 28th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You know, there are a lot of assholes in America, and each has his or her own special story. It seemed like for a while there, we were going to have to get to know every one of them. As captured by cell phone, we were going to have to pronounce judgments and try to get things taken away from them. Things like jobs, leases, social standing, what have you. So two prominent assholes weren't just assholes, but racist assholes, or at least assholes who did racist things. And therefore, that made for a ready-made opportunity to castigate the assholes. You've probably heard of the anti-birder, Amy Cooper. The other guy I'm talking about is Tom Austin, a Minnesotan, who called the cops or maybe building security because a group of African-American men were using his building's gym. They were allowed to, but Austin claimed it wasn't racism. Here he is. This is an exact quote that he gave to the Minneapolis Star Tribune. He told the young black men, quote, I'm sorry you thought I was being racist, but I was not. If you were a bunch of women, I would have done the same thing. What? Anti-Semite? Nothing could be further from the truth. I use zippers and electricity all the time. Now, here's the problem with our asshole identification program. It's too inefficient. And sure, social media offers a fine mechanism to find all the assholes and whip ourselves up into frenzies and judgment over them. Twitter allows us to pour over and examine each asshole in intricate detail because, you know, each asshole is unique in his or her own way. And as with a jeweler's loop, we examine and we can eventually even grade each asshole by using the classic four C's, the four C's of assholes. We know them to be confidence, confrontationalism, and Cocker Spaniel choking. The problem is there are so many assholes doing so many assholic things, and we're so often asked to rush to judgment on them to form conclusions that it's just taxing. And eventually it stops being fun. I mean, hypothetically, it's got to be at some point. There just are so many individual assholes. And it's not just that. There are so many categories of asshole. There's the Becky. There's the Karen. There's the Darren. There's the dad of Baron. The dad of Baron will not only deny being an asshole, he'll deny having a son named Baron. And it, it is a convincing act. Maybe he's plum forgotten in between issuing proclamations for Twitter or the jeweler's loop of assholery to stop being mean to him. Or maybe it's that I'm an asshole for bringing up a teenager to try to score a political point. The fact is, I am bringing up a teenager, unlike the president of the United States. Does that make me an asshole? Who knows? Until someone starts filming me threatening to call the cops or even merely looking at them smugly, I could be an asshole. I probably am an asshole. My time in the barrel will happen once we get to most of our other 330 million fellow citizens slash probable assholes. On the show today, 
I spiel about how Minneapolis is reacting to the senseless killing of George Floyd and what kind of judgments are easy to make when we see stores on fire and looting as a response to a civic sin. But first, Dave Eggers is the author of several works, one of them a heartbreaking work of staggering genius, The Memoir. There also was The Circle, which is a dystopian sci-fi type novel about a huge tech company. He also wrote a quasi-novel about a Sudanese refugee. Last year, Eggers came out with an allegorical tale called The Captain and the Glory about a Trump-like figure who screws up a very nice boat. And he's also out now with the paperback version of The Parade. It's about two contractors in a war-torn country. It's an actual infrastructure week of the soul, if you will. Dave Eggers is here to talk about the parade and more up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Four and nine, that's their names, well, the names they've been assigned, are two Western contractors hired to pave a road, a very long, very straight road in a war-torn country. Four, also known as Clock, is the boss. He drives the newfangled machine, and he quickly assesses that nine is a loose cannon and a risk. Nine takes gambles, talks too much, beds the local women, and eventually gets four in a heap of trouble. It is the setup of the book The Parade by Dave Eggers, who is the founder of McSweeney's, and he was on the show a few months ago to talk about The Captain and the Glory, which is a book of a similar length, of a slightly different tone, that I understand he was writing at the same time, which is one thing we're going to get into. Hello, Dave. Welcome back. Hey, good to be here. So I'll start with this. Four and nine, these guys, are they symbols or are they more types or are they characters, but we're kind of disassociated from them and their humanity for a reason, for a, for a reason uh, that you have chosen to instill upon them the names four and nine? Well, I think all of those things, really. Um, I wanted to, first of all, um, try to uh, disconnect them from any one country of origin. I think because I'm, I'm an American, people assume or might assume that these guys are Americans and that this is a commentary on American imperialism or economic colonialism and... Um, uh, I really wanted to try it at, at the very beginning to at least uh, attempt to disconnect them from being strictly American. And because I think that this kind of situation where you have foreign contractors abroad who are sent to a country they know nothing about to complete a project, the motivations for which they know nothing and are completely divorced from, this happens all the time. And more than anything, these days, it's Chinese contractors abroad, all over Africa and, and parts of Eastern Europe, who are building these roads and ports, airports, uh, and for purposes that they know nothing about, and for long-range political and 
economic aims that the Chinese are pretty opaque about. And so I just wanted to sort of talk about what it would be like to be these two guys who are trying to get the job done. Their own motivations for being there are are very different. One is really about the work and the other is about the adventure and what it would be. And I wanted to explore inter, interactions between the two of them in intimate and solitary settings. And then also, you know, what do they symbolize on a larger level about putting uh, foreigners abroad to facilitate designs beyond their reckoning? In fact, I I hadn't assumed four and nine were American because I haven't traveled to as many places as you have. But the Americans who do this work are sometimes warriors and war mercenaries and Blackwater or whatever they've redubbed that. But the infrastructure people are often, like you say, Swedish or German. I, I don't know that it's likely or usual that it's Americans who are paving roads and grading the uh, roads in a place like w- where your book takes place? Well, the, the corollary for the American presence is, is in Iraq and Afghanistan after the initial fighting. You would, I don't know if you remember, but back in like 2004, they started recruiting truckers because there's so much trucking that Halliburton and uh, the larger contractors needed done, and they were getting just regular long-haul truckers from the U.S. to come over to Iraq to, to drive some of these really perilous routes. And uh, they would be paid phenomenally, you know, maybe a year's pay in a month or two, but they were just regular guys. They had no military training or anything like that. And suddenly they're taking on this incredible risk just for the, the money, in a place that, and in a political situation that they probably have no interest in, but they're there to do the job. And you find this in whether it's electricians or, uh, you know, um, surveyors or people that build schools or air conditioning repair experts, like all of these people have to, are dropped into these zones and um, have to either take an interest or close out they're, you know, close their eyes to it and say, you know what, I'm just going to focus on this. And in this case, there's the guy four that thinks, okay, I'm paving this road. And he thinks ultimately it's not up to him to decide what the road is for and, and who, what, what the motivations are to build it. He's going to do it and hope that he does it well. And he's interested in the integrity of that road. And then if, if he does that well, maybe the rest will take care of itself. The endeavor is literally and literarily straightforward. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I, I read up a lot about paving. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I, even early on, I thought, you know what? I really wanted this to be a two-person, almost like a one-act play or a three-act Beckett play, you know, where you really have a, just a few characters reacting in a kind of a, an apocalyptic, surreal landscape. And I had to think of usually, you know, paving. If you see anybody, I I watched all these road paving teams and I would see how, you know, how they're done and how many people it took. And it's dozens of vehicles to to build a major road and, you know, 20 odd people. And, And then I looked up and I found a prototype of a Volvo paver for the future 
that would only take one to two people, and everything else, everything is self-contained, and uh, they, you know, have these self-heating pods of asphalt, and uh, it's online. You can look it up. In, in case you're really bored, you can look up the Volvo uh, single, you know, person paving machine. But um, but that made it possible to think about, like, okay, uh, this is possible future to have this done by such a, a small group. But it is where things like this might go, where you have this team that doesn't even have to leave the vehicle, really. They don't have to listen to any local advice or interact at all with anybody along the way. And they can just, you know, look at the point in the horizon when the job is done and, uh, and otherwise uh, be completely shut out and self-contained. And Four even has headphones, that he, so he, he doesn't even have to uh, pretend to be able to listen to anything along the way. And I think that that, in a lot of ways, this is how so much of, you know, increasingly our work is done, is that people are sort of, you know, self-isolating and about the work at hand and not about and, and finding extreme ways to remove all human distraction around them and interest in anybody or anything in the world that they're passing through. So I want to go back to the discovery of the Volvo paver. If you hadn't found that, that was the eureka moment. But if you hadn't come across that, would you have to scrap the whole idea? I mean, you invented a country, you... We, for all we know, these people aren't, the four and nine aren't from a real country. Why couldn't you just uh, say, all right, I'm going to, for the sake of this overall idea I have and for the dynamic of the classic two-hander with one straight arrow and one chaos agent, I'll just invent the technology that allows my uh, literary vision to be accomplished. I think it's a, such a good question, but I think that I found that really early on. I think I found the paver in the note stage when I was just sort of vaguely forming it. And I, so I, I don't know if I had a, a long period of time where I was like, Jesus, what am I going to do with that? <laughs> the logistics of it. Yeah. Because like paving, tw- pavement Twitter will be all over your ass if you just <laughs> made know. something up. They are the worst. They're all <laughs> yeah. about verisimilitude, those guys. And, um, yeah, I, I think um, I probably just would have used some sort of illusion and just sort of said, well, you know how it is within the future with paving um, and, and, and gone. You, ideally, you know, you try to do as little as possible. If the, if the book is not about that technology, you don't really want to invite that many questions. So I have read your work, I wouldn't say every book, but many of them. And I think something that has happened to you or that you've made a decision to do happens to a lot of artists who are literary. And as you go on, you get a little more terse. You know, the extraneous words slip away. I think if we, not just word count, but if we we looked at just individual phrases of a heartbreaking work of staggering genius, hell, listen to the title of that book, versus later work, you would find it becoming more and more spare and maybe more and more impactful. And a lot of artists follow that. But in this book, there's that going on. But then with, I would say, all of Four's internal thoughts and the general descriptions, very terse uh, to the point. But then when Nine speaks dialogue, oh, it's very lush. 
And I was wondering if you've thought about your how your writing style has evolved and how that one character fits into it. Well, you know, you, you hit on something that I was obsessed with when I was a young fan of uh, everyone from Saul Bellow as a writer to Elvis Costello or Lou Reed or Bruce Springsteen or Joan Didion, you know, all of my sort of heroes of whether they were musician, uh, you know, lyricists or novel writers, I noticed that same thing. And I would say, boy, I really, why is Bruce getting more terse as he gets older? I loved the, you know, the maximalism of his early songs, you know, and uh, greetings from Asbury Park or something. And then as I got older, I started noticing it in uh, my own work too. And so I see it the same way you do objectively, like from a distance, like, oh, that's interesting. I'm doing exactly that thing I noticed in some of my heroes when when I was growing up. But I will say that it ebbs and flows because this book had to be terse. And uh, because you're seeing it a little bit more through Four's point of view, and he is that kind of logical thinker who never says more than he needs to. and, And we're not supposed to be deep in his mind. And, and, and nine is the one that has a more florid kind of expansive way of expressing himself and seeing the world. And so I, I really consciously thought this is going to be very terse. I want it to be tense in that way. And the tension relies on all that you don't know and that you sort of can imagine or create your own dread. Um, and then there'll be these points where you let nine loose and sort of to express a more, generous view of the world. But in a, in a larger sense, I always think that each book need, has and demands its own tone and style. And, you know, when I wrote Zaytun, that was a big turning point because that was very plain. And it was nonfiction, and I couldn't elaborate on things I didn't know about. So I was really limited to writing the facts and writing what I could prove. And that was like a big stylistic challenge to sort of pull back that much. But it, it, as a journalist and by training, like, you know, sometimes you just have to sacrifice whatever stylistic, you know, embellishments you want to make in your own voice to the story. You have to be in service to the story. You have to do it right. So even though the parade is this really sort of spared, you know, uh, pared back style, this thing I'm working on right now is back to a much more maximalist uh, voice because the book and the subject matter asks for it. And so um, I feel like I want to be able to always um, pinball between whatever style is most appropriate to that story. And being able to vary it is actually what makes it interesting to get up in the morning rather than writing 19 books that sound the same. Yeah, and I want to ask you about what you're working on now. But when you mentioned Springsteen, and that's why when I phrased the question, I didn't just say writers. I was actually literally thinking of Springsteen because I'm a big fan. And, you know, first line on the first album is just madman, bummers, drummers, Indians in the summers, and teenage diplomats. It's just the young man, so much to say, it's all flowing forth and pouring out of him. But when he was asked about why that happened with him, 
He said he actually thinks that's how people experience the world, that they experience it more as a quick glimpse, a fleeting phrase, rather than these big, uh, florid descriptions. And I've thought about that a lot. And I think maybe (laughs) it may be as true as you get older, you uh, have seen more and you price more into your experience. And the older person can see something and say, oh, I know what this means. And it just means something quick and plain and straightforward. But for the young person or someone without as much experience, there's so much possibility. I mean, I'm not sure Bruce is right. I think he's more right about being true to where he was in the time he was writing it. But the thing about your book is I, I would assume that four is older and more experienced and nine is younger. So the younger person would just have and use and be in thrall of more words. Well, you know, it's a really interesting question. I, I think that I think Bruce is in mid-thought there. You know, I think that he's figuring it out just like we are. I think early on he was really, you know, so deeply influenced by Dylan's lyrics. And I think that that kind of internal rhymes and um, curly Q uh, lyrics that um, play uh, with, it, with uh, um, you know, all that interplay line by line, I think it... And maybe later on he, you know, sort of became more fully himself and less influenced by his influences. But who knows? I mean, all I'll say is that uh, I I know and love so many writers who establish a really distinct style and, and you read one sentence and you know it's that person. I just feel like it really depends on the mood, the place you are in, in life, and also what that subject matter needs or brings out of you. I was writing this account of, I went to Haiti years ago for uh, Carnival and um, spent a week in Jacmel, which is like a lesser known city and a really beautiful place. And whenever I think about it, it just has, I feel like writing three page sentences that, you know, with minimal punctuation and <laughs> Because it was just this like fever dream, joyous time uh, among, you know, just so many people I met and loved and uh, meeting and, and, and it was just, so it comes out that way in my head uh, as this like flowing, unpunctuatable, you know, color burst. And so that demands a, tr- a certain kind of style, whereas the you know the work that they're doing in the parade just demands a a much more regimented schedule based uh, clock bound style and so I I conceive of these things sort of as a whole like I knew the sh- I knew the shape of the parade before I began it I know how knew how it would end and then it's a matter of like shaping and and perfecting the tone to get it just right and in service to like create the effect and the impact that that you have in mind. And um, so it's, you know, I I talk to writing students about it all the time. And like, you know, everyone's always talking about finding your voice and that that's the key thing. And, and then finding your voice and then presumably writing just like that for the rest of your years. And I think that that's not necessarily the way it has to be. I think that you can evolve and double back and come back to a style or, you know, and invent a completely new one. And I was always interested in those shapeshifters, like Ishiguro uh, does that. Every one of his books really does sound differently. But 
it's perfect. You know, every one of those books is is perfect in its own way, but perfect to the story he's telling. And so when I discovered him, I thought like, oh, I can see why he's doing that. And this is maybe explains why I sometimes do it the way I do. Dave Eggers is the author of The Parade. He is the founder of McSweeney's and 826 Valencia. Dave, thanks so much for coming on. Great to talk to you, Mike. And now the spiel. Three days ago, George Floyd, a 46-year-old African-American man, was killed by a Minneapolis police officer who knelt on Floyd's neck for several minutes. Officer Derek Chauvin ignored cries of, I can't breathe, ignored silence that followed, and didn't have to ignore the advice of his fellow officers to stop crushing the man because they did not give such advice. All the policemen involved did ignore the pleas of onlookers who were filming them. That video led to the firing of all four of them and a call for Minneapolis's mayor to prosecute Chauvin. It also understandably led to outrage, protest, and then rioting. One target was a local target, the store. This is audio of people making off with home furnishings, carts of household wares, a vacuum cleaner, and a crock pot. So I've been asking myself, maybe you have too, well, why does this looting occur in the wake of a truly outrageous action? I'm often of the mindset that looting and rioting and arson, they're not the cause of the breakdown in law. That's how it normally works. We see these things and we say, ah, law has broken down. In fact, they're more like the result of it because it was the police who acted like murderers. And in doing so, the police endorse lawlessness. This, what we're seeing, is more of an outgrowth or a consequence. As of this morning, buildings were still on fire in Minneapolis, as the ABC affiliate KTSP reported. This was one of those bigger fires, and that was an apartment building that was about to be completed. And then that's the huge fire right here. That's, that's the Sigma building and just the flames. The flames are still there. That building, according to the Star Tribune, was to be an affordable housing project. It was going to be six stories tall, a rental with 189 apartments for low-income renters, including more than three dozen apartments for very low-income tenants. So senseless and yet understandable. That's not a contradiction. Doesn't make a lot of sense using the higher orders of brain function, but I, and I think you, can understand it. We get it. A fraction of the population was protesting, a fraction of them, we're protesting, saying maybe burn it down, maybe acting on that. And to some extent, they did burn it down. It was indiscriminate. That is how rage works. And another part of the population was also feeling lawless or angry or maybe just opportunistic, maybe even strategic. Here, let's go back to that KSTP news report where the reporter said this. 40 police officers have been called to help with this ongoing situation. Help? Help, huh? I don't think a lot of Minnesotans associate the police with helping the situation right now. So who is left to help? Well, a somewhat peeved local newsman took it upon himself to lecture the looters. Is that yours to take? Is that yours? Hey, is that yours to take? Hold on. Can you see them behind me? You guys see them behind me? Yeah. Look at them walking out. Hey, is that yours to take? Actually, it's exactly like that, only brighter. 
That newscaster went on to offer this assessment. I would not say for the most part that this situation, there's a couple of Minneapolis police, um, which I have not seen a lot of. It looks like they may be coming in position here, possibly um, trying to protect these fire crews are above us. I would not say that most of the people here right now are in a, a rioting mood. Which brings up the question, how does one get in a proper rioting mood? Okay. I don't want to joke here because there's actually a lot of scholarship on this subject. The Stanford sociologist Mark Granovetter studied participation in riots, and he found a kind of network effect. Malcolm Gladwell described it in The New Yorker this way. In the elegant theoretical model Granovetter proposed, riots were started by people with a threshold of zero, instigators willing to throw a rock through a window at the slightest provocation. Then comes the person who will throw a rock if someone else goes first. He has a threshold of one. Next in is the person with a threshold of two. His qualms are overcome when he sees the instigator and the instigator's accomplice. Next to him is someone with a threshold of three who would never break windows and loot stores unless there were three people right in front of him who were already doing that. And so on to the hundredth person and so on to the hundredth person, a righteous, upstanding citizen who nonetheless could set his beliefs aside and grab a camera from the broken window of the electronic store if everyone around him was grabbing cameras from the electronic store or vacuums or crockpots. However, I'd like to add something to that analysis. It might not always work as a gradual buildup, one, then two, then three. What if the first person isn't acting alone? What if so many people were so aggrieved, as is probably the case right here, that they, they all, three or 40 or 50 anguish protesters, throw a rock or a Molotov cocktail? I, th- I am suggesting this is the situation in Minneapolis. And whenever it comes to a riot, there is a usual line of reasoning that plays out. People unsympathetic to the underlying cause, in this case police reform, will use it to discredit the rioters, anyone who looks like the rioters, anyone who a person objecting to police reform can paint as in league with the rioters. There will be voices within the community who maybe do want police reform who will say, and these voices will be amplified, this is not the way to express your anger. That's true. That cry usually falls on deaf ears to say nothing of pepper gas stung eyes. But always, almost always, the following Martin Luther King Jr. quote will be invoked. A riot is the language of the unheard. It's such a beautiful phrase, but I was pondering it. Is it true? In 1964, it might've been true, but in the age of social media, Twitter, YouTube, is being unheard what's going on? But then as I thought about it more, I said, you know what, I think I'm conflating unheard with unexpressed. Protesters, among them some rioters, are putting their message out there. Effectively, some people are hearing it, but still, civilians, disproportionately black men, are being killed by the police, in many cases, without even the semblance of a reasonable excuse. MLK, I don't even have to say, is a secular saint by now, so if he calls a riot the language of the unheard, it tends to be a mic drop. But I looked into the speech where he expounded on that belief. Not where he first said it, because he said it often in different fora over the years. But there was a famous speech, various iterations of it, called The Other America. And in one version, one famous version, that he delivered at Stanford University, he talked about the notion of black people demanding equality. And the concomitant notion that sometimes they go too far, as with looting or a riot. And this engenders a backlash, a white 
backlash. This is the phenomenon that King was speaking of when he said this. Now this leads me to say something about another discussion that we hear a great deal, and that is the so-called white backlash. And I would like to honestly say to you that the white backlash is merely a new name for an old phenomenon. It's not something that just came into being because shouts of shouts of black power or because Negroes engaged in riots in Watts, for instance. The fact is that the state of California voted a fair housing bill out of existence before anybody shouted black power or before anybody rioted in Watts. It may well be that shouts of black power and riots in Watts and the Harlems and the other areas are the consequences of the white backlash rather than the cause of them. So replace the fair housing bill that defeat in California with the death of Philando Castile. Yes, Castile was not killed by Minneapolis police. It was in a neighboring jurisdiction, but it was just seven miles away. Replace the fair housing bill defeat with another incident in Minneapolis recently where another young black man, Jamar Clark, was killed by police. And then, as protesters angry at that, assembled a stupid young racist, shot them, shot four of them. They all lived. So that adds to it. Maybe replace that specific injustice that King was talking about with almost everything that's been done by Bob Kroll, who's the Minneapolis police union head. He once called Black Lives Matter a terrorist organization. He printed up Cops for Trump t-shirts and spoke at a Trump rally. Or when Bob Kroll defied the Minneapolis mayor's ruling that the police would not be doing warrior training, so-called warrior training, which was dangerous and overly aggressive. He arranged for a private company to give the Minneapolis police this warrior training for free. Here's local station WCCO-TV reporting on that. In a statement, Mayor Fry said in part that officers who pursue training that conflicts with MPD's training and has not been pre-approved will be subject to discipline. The head of the police union, Lieutenant Bob Kroll, said, while it seems that the lives of our officers are not important to politicians, they certainly are by law officer. So the police union, after a spate of violent interactions with the public, defied a mayoral decree that wouldn't allow them to get extra tough warrior training. Bob Kroll, still head of the union, by the way, issued a statement about the latest killing, urging calm and saying, quote, now is not the time to rush to judgment. Okay, well, maybe to the citizens of Minneapolis right now is not the time. Maybe they, however, have had ample time to consider the other killings that I've mentioned. Doesn't have to be about this one. Could be about all the other ones. All the other times that there was a senseless killing and they've really pondered it. And now they're out on the streets, some protesting in a constructive way and others among them perhaps setting fires to housing that would have gone to people within their community. The question is, what's the backlash and what's the lash? And you know, maybe the lash shouldn't be anywhere near a proper policing model of the year 2020. Rioting is not constructive, and it may or may not be the language of the unheard, but it is part of the overall din that you hope gets some people, the right people, to pay attention. And that's it for today's show. 
Margaret Kelly is the just associate producer. Very, very much not an asshole. Really, also not a Karen. Is a Margaret, but not a Marge, a Maggie, a Meg, a Peg, a Peggy, or a Margie. It's a lot of things not to be. Daniel Schrader is the gist's producer. Not an asshole. Also not a Dan or a Danny. But if he had to pick one, Dan or Danny, I think he'd go with asshole. The gist. I don't think I'm an asshole, but I will cop to Dillweed bordering on jerkwad. It's okay. With all the raging assholes out there, I think I'm safe. Oopru depru dupru, and thanks for listening. Let this cat in. It's a lot of cat. Being a cat. Hope you didn't hear the meowing. Okay, okay, okay.